Today, we're going to visit South Dakota, a place that is known for its beautiful prairies, but whispers of ancient folklore rustle through the grasslands. On the edge of a thrilling expedition, we will peer into history and uncover a delicate dance between myth and mystery. Today's topics, the Spirit Mound, where famed adventurers Lewis and Clark made a haunting discovery. And then we'll squeeze a little true crime in here and go over the chilling aftermath of the Gitche Manitou murders. Our journey takes us down forgotten paths, echoing with long, quiet tales. However, we must tread lightly, for each unearthed secret may cast a shadow. So under the vast Dakota sky, let's unravel the threads of truth that shape our understanding of this interesting, mysterious, and sometimes downright scary world. Do you believe in ghosts? Join me on a journey through America's dark and haunted past as we explore the ghost stories and folklore that have been passed down for generations. What scares you? Let's find out. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. This is a potential tinfoil hat episode, so folks, buckle up. In archived government journals written by Lewis and Clark in 1804, a very intriguing story about potential extraterrestrial life is discovered. Told you. The explorers took a detour to investigate reported sightings of extraterrestrial beings living on a peculiar hill in what is now South Dakota. This could potentially make Lewis and Clark the original men in black. Although they would probably be more men in brown based on the wardrobe at the time. Eh, potatoes, potatoes. Let's take a look at this fascinating part of their journey. So centuries ago, several Native American tribes from the area that is now South Dakota held a deep fear of little people who were said to inhabit the spirit mound. Each tribe had similar tales about a group of diminutive spirits who lived on Pahawakan. Oh boy, here we go. Native American, uh, come on, babble. Kanatina Baja, or the Mountain of the Little People. I think I did pretty good on that one. These stories have been passed down through generations for around 90 elders, which translates to thousands of years. One of the most recent accounts gives us some idea of when these events may have taken place. The descriptions of these beings all paint a picture of small humanoids with unusually large heads who reside on the spirit mound. Anyone who approached the mound was met with fierce attacks and usually ended up dead due to the precise accuracy of tiny, fast arrows launched from a distance. These creatures were known to be aggressive and fiercely guarded their territory on the mound. Now, legend states that around 200 years ago, a group of 350 fearless Lakota warriors set out to conquer the spirit mound and rid the area of its terrifying inhabitants once and for all. They quietly crept up under the cover of darkness. But somehow, the little people, they were fully aware of their presence. The warriors' horses were attacked first and chased away. This left the warriors with no mean of escape. And after that failed attempt, the entire party either ended up dead or permanently injured. 
Now, after this failed attempt, no one from neighboring tribes dared to venture near the site, even when offered compensation. It wasn't until many, many years later when the entities suddenly just disappeared and the locals felt that it was safe enough to visit the hill. Interestingly, the Lakota tribe did not have horses until around 1700. What's interesting is that the Lakota tribe did not have horses until around 1700, making this story relatively recent. Located north of Vermilion in South Dakota, the land is mostly flat prairie, except for one distinct mound, standing 90 feet high with a short ridge running directly north and south. Now, while geologists and government scientists believe it's a natural feature, there is no permission to dig on the property to confirm its origin. According to the South Dakota Division of Game, Fish, and Parks, on clear days, the summit offers stretching views as far off as 20 miles in every direction. You can see landmarks like the Big Sioux River, James River, and the Nebraska Bluffs. This makes the Spirit Mound an ideal spot for observing game or for spotting enemies from a great distance. Now you understand why the native tribes fought wars over this mound. On August 25, 1804, Lewis and Clark made the decision to trek a few miles north of their main exploration route, the Missouri River. Their goal was to investigate rumors of bizarre creatures living on an isolated hill known as Devils, but they spelt it D-E-A-V-E-L-S in their journal. From the pages of Lewis and Clark's journal, August 25th, 1804. Captain Lewis and myself concluded to visit a high hill situated in an immense plain three leagues north 20 west from the mouth of the Whitestone River. This hill appears to be of a conic form and by all the different nations in this quarter is supposed to be a place of devils and that they are only in human form with remarkable large heads about 18 inches high that they are very watchful and are armed with sharp arrows which they can kill at a great distance. They are said to kill all persons who are so hardy to attempt to approach the hill. They state that tradition informs them that many Indians have suffered by these little people, and among others, the three Maha men felt a sacrifice to their merciless fury not many years since. So much do the Mahasu, Otos, and other neighboring nations believe this fable that no consideration is sufficient to induce them to approach this hill. Standing on top of the Spirit Mound, it's an incredible feeling to know that Lewis and Clark were also there. While rivers and landmarks can change over time, the hill remains exactly as it is when they stood upon it. Luckily, the public is free to visit this historic spot. The hike to the top is less than a mile, and they say it's really easy, so it's probably well worth the journey. According to Lewis and Clark's reports, there was no sign of human life on the Spirit Mound. Instead, insects and birds flourished on the sheltered side of the hill away from the wind. The vast plains stretched out before them with roaming buffalo as far as the eye could see, a sight that we can only imagine today. And perhaps there were also little people who once called this place home, adding to the mystique of this ancient landmark. Now, when things like this come up, I like to have a little Q&A with myself. And there are numerous questions that arise when considering the legends surrounding Spirit Mount. How many people actually witnessed these sightings? 
Well, according to the accounts from four separate Native American tribes, there were potentially dozens to even hundreds of witnesses. The consistency of these stories across different tribes lends credibility to their claims. Were these little people maybe a different kind of animal? According to reports, they had distinctive features such as oversized heads and they stood around 18 inches tall. Although it's hard to be sure since no one really got close enough to measure. Also, none of the known animals in the area really fit that description. So when did these little people occupy the spirit mound? The fact that they frightened away horses during a war party attack means it must have taken place after horses were introduced to North America by the Spanish in 1540. The Pueblo Indians started trading and raising horses between 1680 and 1694, and the Lakota didn't have them until around 1700. This narrows down the time frame to within 100 years prior to Lewis and Clark's visit in 1804. And yet, there is no mention of these little people in any records after that time suggesting that they stopped inhabiting the Spirit Mound sometime during the 1700s. Okay, so where'd they go? Well, some theories suggest that they may have migrated to or possibly even originated from the Ochieden Mound in Northwest Iowa, which also had stories of angry tiny creatures at its summit. Interesting. Alternatively, they could have moved on to places like Pryor Mountain or any other location where Native American tribes reported sightings of similar beings. Or, you know, maybe they just went back home. Even though there is no evidence to support this, it still remains a possibility. Now, here's the million dollar question. What could potentially be uncovered if digging there was permitted? Well, if the stories of just the Spirit Mound are exactly that, stories, then it's likely that nothing significant would be found. Even if this high point on the prairie was once home to extraterrestrial beings in the past few centuries, there may not be any traces left behind now. However, there is always a small chance that something of alien origin could have been left behind. A tiny nut, a screw, a couple strands of fiber optics, a laser gun, something. These objects would be huge in proving that we are not alone in the universe. So are these little people legends only found in Native American culture? And that answer is nope, not at all. There have been multiple reports of small mummified bodies resembling humans found in caves throughout the western United States, including Wyoming, Oregon, and Montana. Hell, even recently on the news you've heard something about some, something like that being found in Mexico. Many different tribes have also have heard stories of encounters with small beings. For example, the Hopi legend mentioned the ant people in Colorado, while Oregon has stories of baby feet people from various Native American tribes. The Flathead Indians in Montana share tales of dwarves living in the Northern Rockies, and nearby Crow Indians tell of aggressive little people who they appease with offering for safe passage through the Pryor Mountains. There are even petroglyphs scattered throughout the country that some believe depict these small people. So is the Spirit Mound a natural formation or is it an artificially constructed hill? Well, at first glance, it may appear to be man-made due to its distinct shape and location as the only prominent feature for miles around. However, geologists say that the Spirit Mound is comprised of a type of chalk at its core 
which is also found along the Missouri River and is covered by glacial till deposited during the last ice age. They believe that this hill was formed naturally over time by erosion caused by glaciers passing through the area. So now, let's go back to the weapons. What could these weapons be that they were so accurate and so fast and that they killed from such a long distance? Now, it was clear from the accounts that the little people possessed technology far beyond what the Native Americans had at the time. The only way for them to describe it would be for them to relate it to something they knew. Arrows. But these arrows were much more advanced, with the ability to hit targets precisely from very long distances. This is a common thing in stories. Throughout history, people have tried always to explain the unknown using known concepts. For example, in the Bible, a possible encounter with a UFO was described in terms of wheels and faces, reflecting that state of technology at the time. Even today, we use familiar terms like, oh, headlights and laser beams to describe unidentified objects in the sky. This shows that our descriptions are limited to our current technology and understanding, while the actual capabilities of these objects may far surpass us. The little sharp arrows that were deadly from afar could have possibly been a high-powered laser, or smart darts guided by advanced targeting. In terms of future or extraterrestrial technology, anything is possible. What matters to them is that the natives at the time, arrows were the best way to describe this unfamiliar technology. Was there evidence that these little people were technologically advanced? Well, yeah. I mean, as I mentioned, the, the weapons suggest an advanced level of technology compared to the bows and arrows used by Native American tribes at the time. And additionally, they also had the ability to detect and defeat a surprise attack by 350 skilled Native American warriors in the cover of darkness. So that hints at some kind of advanced detection system or real advanced strategy that they were aware of. The Spirit Mound was a valuable piece of land due to its strategic location and view of the surrounding area. It would have provided a tactical advantage for any tribe living near or on it. However, this also made it a target for other tribes who may have wanted to claim it for themselves. The potential bloodshed and constant threat of attack may have led to a truce among the tribes to avoid this land. The legend of the little people could have been created as a way for the elders to discourage their own people from attempting to gain or hold the hill through battle. Now, while this theory may seem plausible, it is just as speculative as the theory of aliens inhabiting the hill. There is also a logical inconsistency with this theory. If no one was supposed to be on the hill, then who killed the war party? There are various reasons why there is so much speculation surrounding these stories. The lack of physical evidence and the fact that all the witnesses are deceased means that all information is second, third, and even fourth hand. Even the accounts of Lewis and Clark are passed down on hearsay since they did not personally encounter the devils, or the devils, however they wrote it. The only, that's like, they wrote it how I would probably pronounce it. It's pretty funny. The only concrete statement that they can make is that there were no devils when they visited in 1804 and that the local population genuinely feared going near the Spirit Mound. The absence of this hill in current UFO literatures can be attributed to its age and the possibility of verifying the stories. 
During their expedition, Lewis and Clark were not preoccupied with UFOs, and the spirit mound itself did not receive much attention nowadays. However, it's possible that aliens did visit this location and that Lewis and Clark's dismissal of any unusual occurrences could be seen as one of the earliest instances of government cover-ups of UFO sightings. Told you, get those hats ready. The identity of the devils remain a mystery, but their presence on Spirit Mound was enough to instill fear in the local population. The way I see it, the Spirit Mound would have been an ideal spot for anyone to inhabit throughout history making it unlikely that there is a conspiracy among Native American tribes to keep people away from it. Its high vantage point and panoramic views in all directions would provide strategic advantages for anyone settling there, including extraterrestrials. Perhaps they crashed nearby and they found this part and they decided that they could easily defend their base from the unknown land attacks that could be coming, or just wait for rescue. We may never actually know, but... As old Fox Mulder used to say, the truth is out there. Hey folks, uh, real quick, I just wanted to stop and give you guys just a real quick update of something that's coming soon. And it's uh, Zachary Bain related. So I've been toying with the idea of, well, I, I said I'm finishing the story one way or the other. And I've actually now taken some time and sat down in front of my uh, computer and started really going to work on the novel. And I've got a couple of chapters that I'm really happy with. You know, I have the whole Bible of the story laid out in front of me. It's just kind of piecing it together. And, you know, as time goes on, my mind changes on things and just the way I want to go about some stuff. So it's actually, I think, I've said I've been playing with this for so long. And I think there's a reason, because now I have a, I think I have a clearer picture in my head of the story I want to tell. And I think all of you will greatly enjoy it. But um, if you are a fan of the Zachary Bain you know, episodes that I put on the story and are interested in the book, I am going to be putting up a Kickstarter project. But I got to see first, obviously I should have checked this out before I make the announcement, but hey, if you've been listening, you know that's not what I'm about. I, want, I have to see if it's even doable what I want to do on Kickstarter, because I want to have a limited number, like let's say 300 people, and offer it at, you know, whatever the, whatever, I don't know, book publishing is rather expensive, and to do just like a, a limited run like that, but I want to do it correctly, I want to be, you know, a beautiful hardcover book. And open it up to 300 people, and that's it. You the, once the book goes, and you know, depending on if it's a success and if you know more people want to hear it or read it, then open it up after that. But the first grouping, probably 250, 300 people, to give you just a beautiful hardcover setup of the Zachary Bain book, and. Just access to me as I go on my journey will, you know, I'll have, it'll be just a very intimate private group of the first 300 people to receive the book. And I'm going to put it up on Kickstarter and I don't know what the price, I, I don't know. I know publishing and printing and all that and things I want to do. Not going to be something crazy, but I don't know, I'm thinking 80 bucks, 100 bucks maybe. 
and it's essentially your the 300 people will essentially be the publishing house and the executive producers of the Zachary Bain story and uh yeah we'll go from there and if it's successful then maybe I'll open it up to a wider audience and maybe try and get it into mass production but these first copies these essentially first edition um collectible copies will be offered just to a limited number of people probably like 250 300 people and uh we'll say hey listen maybe I'm overreaching maybe I think that the story is more popular than it is and this will be a good way for me to knock myself off that peg which I need every now and again so anyway just that's a quick announcement look out for that um coming soon hopefully i'll have some information more for it next week with maybe a link to it and uh yeah and then you know as we as you join that well i'll be reaching out with you know chapter releases and just story updates and like hey check out this hey this is going into editing and blah 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 blah. and it'll be cool you know artwork and the whole nine yards so look out for that um the link probably oh you know what on the spotify comments let me know if that's something you're even interested in. Um, yeah, so let's, uh, before I ramble on any further, let's keep this episode of South Dakota going and be on the lookout for the Zach Bain Kickstarter. Later, folks. Thanks. Hey, folks. I've got a nice little factoid for you guys. Do you know that one in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket lists? If that's you, which odds are one in five. Make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. And if you struggle with pronunciation, like old Chrissy over here, Babbel will work miracles. Head on over to babbel.com slash haunted for a special deal for my listeners. Right now, you can get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but that's only for my listeners at babbel.com slash haunted. That's B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash haunted. Rules and restrictions may apply. In the autumn of 1973, Sandra Chesky, a 13-year-old girl, navigated her way through 7th grade. Life had always been met with a steady, unwavering determination, as Sandra strived to avoid trouble and embrace the stability of just being a good girl. However, on the night of November 17th, trouble came knocking at her door, and it would disrupt the tranquility that she had come to know and love. Having recently moved, Sandra had effortlessly assimilated to her new surroundings. She made some new friends and even found herself entwined in a young romance with a young man named Roger Essam, a popular and easygoing 17-year-old boy. It was Roger who extended an invitation that evening that would forever alter the course of their lives. He asked Sandra to join him and their friends, Stuart Bade, Dana Bade, and Michael Hadrath on a trip to Gitche Manitou State Preserve, a wildlife sanctuary that straddled the border between Iowa and South Dakota. 
Now, before any of you come for me, I understand that Gitchy Manitou is technically in Iowa. But it's right there. You can spit on it from the, the South Dakota border. I mean, they kind of intertwine with each other. And Sandra was from South Dakota, and she recently just moved over. When I say she moved, she moved into Iowa. But it's still South Dakota folklore, all right? Lay off me. Close enough. Anyway, oh boy. Blinded by her affection for Roger and unaware of the park's remote location, Sandra eagerly accepted the invitation. The South Dakotans and the Iowans. Iowa, Iowans? Oh, they're going to come for me in this one. The group piled into Stewart's van, brimming with anticipation and laughter. They were utterly oblivious to the events that would soon unfold. As they embarked on their journey, their carefree banter filled the air, blissfully unaware that only one of them would emerge alive from the darkness that awaited them. As they navigated the dark trail leading them deeper into the heart of Gitchy Manitou, Sandra's initial excitement morphed into trepidation. Sensing her unease, Roger reassured her that everything would be all right. But as they arrived to their destination and gathered around a crackling campfire, telling stories and reveling in its warmth, an eerie disturbance in the surrounding woods began to unsettle the group. They initially dismissed the rustling leaves and snapping branches as the curious presence of a deer or other woodland creatures. Their peace was shattered when Roger and Stuart, the group's elder statesmen, ventured out toward the woods to investigate. A series of deafening gunshots rang out, halting them in their tracks. Stuart cried out in agony, revealing that he'd been shot. And then the horrifying truth dawned upon them. They were very much in danger. In a panic, Sandra, Dana, and Michael sought refuge behind nearby trees. It was just then two armed men emerged from the woods, positioning themselves menacingly in front of the campfire identifying themselves as narcotics agents and announcing their intent to arrest everyone for drug possession. The intruders were soon joined by a third man, who appeared seemingly out of thin air. Fear gripped Sandra's heart as they ordered them to reveal themselves from their hiding place. Believing these men to be law enforcement officers, the terrified teenagers complied. But as they emerged into the open, another gunshot shattered the night air striking Michael in his arm and causing him to collapse in agonizing pain. Sandra and Dana instinctively dropped to the ground, seeking safety in the grass. However, instead of offering mercy or assistance to the trembling trio lying face down before them, the apparent leader of the group callously accused them of feigning their injuries. To prove his point, he subjected each of them to a cruel kick as he passed them by. As they winced and recoiled from each blow, he warned them to get up if they knew what was good for them. Etching themselves into Sandra's memory were the nicknames that these men had used among themselves. The Boss, Hatchet Face, and JR. Each name carried an air of menace and foreboding that only heightened her terror. The tall, thin figure who seemed to hold the power of life and death in his hands was aptly dubbed The Boss while the others were known by the other grim monikers. Forcing Sandra to her feet, the boss led her toward Stuart's van, tightly binding her hands before placing her inside the vehicle. After a brief exchange with his cohorts, the boss assumed the role of the driver and sped away, leaving Sandra in captive isolation 
As the van disappeared into the distance, Sandra's desperate inquiries about Roger's well-being were met with assurances from the boss that the rifles used were loaded with tranquilizer darts rather than bullets. He assured her that her friends were merely sleeping and would awaken unscathed in a matter of hours. Don't worry about it. Unbeknownst to Sandra, a gruesome scene of violence unfolded back at the campsite. Dana, Michael, and Stewart were led to a pickup truck under the pretense of being transported to the police station. However, upon reaching the vehicle, they were placed on their knees and shot execution-style in the head. Roger had tragically been killed instantly during the initial encounter. After an eternity of driving, the boss finally halted the van in front of an aged farmhouse. Inquiring about Sandra's background, he seemed genuinely shocked to discover that she was only 13. This revelation prompted him to decide against arresting her, and instead he promised to extricate her from her harrowing ordeal. In a bizarre attempt to create camaraderie with his captive, the boss engaged Sandra in a conversation. However, their interaction was abruptly interrupted when a blue pickup truck pulled beside them. In an instant, the boss exited the van, swapping places with JR, a man whose mere presence sent shivers down Sandra's spine. His stoic expression and icy demeanor foretold the horrors yet to come. Demanding that Sandra disrobe, JR revealed his vile intentions. Desperately hoping to appeal to any shred of humanity that might reside in JR's cold heart, Sandra disclosed her virginity and pleaded for mercy. But her pleas, they fell on deaf ears, and JR callously violated her. Once he finished, the boss resumed his position behind the wheel, ignoring the assault that had just taken place. The van then retreated from the farmhouse, and Sandra remained oblivious to the fact that her captors had decided that she had seen too much and must be silenced. But rather than ending her life, the boss requested directions to her parents' house, reaffirming his promise to relieve her of her dire situation. And so, he drove her home, releasing her into the embrace of her family as the sun began its ascent into the sky. At that moment, amidst the serene backdrop of a new day dawning, Sandra allowed herself a fleeting belief that the horrors of the previous night were nothing but a haunting nightmare. Later that day, a couple visiting from South Dakota stumbled upon the lifeless bodies of three young boys discarded amidst the weeds of the Gitchie Manitou State Reserve. Police arrived at the scene to discover that each victim had suffered fatal gunshot wounds to the head. Wallets found in their pockets revealed their identities. On November 18th, Sandra courageously walked into a police station and recounted the harrowing events that unfolded that fateful night. However, her incredible tale of encountering three madmen armed with tranquilizer guns left detectives skeptical. Unbeknownst to Sandra, three lifeless bodies lay in the morgue, victims not of tranquilizer darts, but of bullets. Throughout the arduous interview process, Sandra repeatedly pleaded to see Roger, oblivious to his fate. Her requests were dismissed as investigators scrutinized every aspect of her account. It wasn't until the following day, when all victims had been accounted for, that Sandra was informed of Roger's death. 
Detectives, perplexed by her survival amidst the carnage, harbored doubts her version of events. How could she be the sole witness left alive if three ruthless killers were involved? To uncover the truth, investigators subjected Sandra to a polygraph test, which she passed with unwavering honesty. Now, despite the test results affirming her story, some still clung to the belief that the 13-year-old girl played a role in the murders. The inconceivable notion that three merciless killers would leave behind a living witness fueled their suspicions. Despite the skepticism she faced, Sandra fully cooperated with the investigation, utilizing her remarkable memory to provide detailed descriptions of the perpetrators, their nicknames, their trucks, and even fragmented recollections of the farmhouse where she had endured unspeakable horrors. Although she lacked the address, her vivid account offered a glimmer of hope to detectives willing to exhaust every avenue to solve this case. Ten days after the initial exposure of the murders, an officer agreed to accompany Sandra on a hopeful quest to locate the infamous farmhouse. Though they anticipated a fruitless search, investigators were willing to grasp at any chance that might lead them closer to resolution. As they meandered along back roads, their journey increasingly tense with each passing hour, frustration gripped the officer. In a moment of exasperation, he urged Sandra to reveal the names of the killers and put an end to this wild goose chase. Unable to answer the man's questions, Sandra turned her gaze away from the man and toward the window, tuning him out and taking in the sights. Amidst this uncomfortable silence, Sandra's eyes caught the sight of a vivid red fuel tank standing sentinel before a farmhouse in Hartfield, South Dakota, roughly 30 minutes from Gitche, Manitou. Recognizing it as the same pump the men had used to refuel their vehicles before the boss had driven her home, Sandra's excitement surged. Against all odds, they had stumbled upon the farmhouse, a tangible testament to her truth. In an astonishing stroke of luck, a blue pickup truck whizzed past them as they prepared to turn into the farmhouse's driveway. Sandra's eyes locked onto the driver, instantly recognizing him. It was the boss. Pointing him out to the officer, with whom she had finally established a rapport, they pursued the vehicle until it was forced to a halt on the side of the road. Calm and collected throughout the encounter, the driver introduced himself as Alan Fryer. When questioned about his presence in the area, he explained that his employment with the farmhouse owner provided a flimsy alibi. Relying on Sandra's unwavering identification of the suspect, law enforcement quickly took 29-year-old Alan Fryer into custody. And within a few hours, his brothers James and David were also apprehended. In a lineup, Sandra without hesitation identified them as the perpetrators. In their defense, the Fryer brothers attempted to weave a tale of misunderstanding and misguided intentions claiming they had been illegally spotlighting deer that night and stumbled upon a group of teenagers indulging in marijuana around a campfire. They concocted a plan to pose as narcotics agents and steal the drugs and cash. However, their scheme quickly spiraled into violence when Allard impulsively fired shots at Roger and Stewart. Their feeble attempt to justify their actions by asserting that law enforcement officers were allowed to shoot unsuspecting drug users fell on deaf ears. 
The brothers conveniently ignored that they were never officers of the law and that their actions had far exceeded any semblance of legality. Once blood was shed, there was no turning back. Rather than simply robbing the unsuspected group before departing, they callously decided to take everything, including their lives and innocence. James, who was known as J.R., futilely claimed that the sexual encounter with Sandra had been consensual, a baseless assertion that crumbled under scrutiny. As the grisly details of the murders were unveiled to the community, shockwaves reverberated through the once idyllic haven. The senseless violence that had infiltrated their peaceful existence forever altered their way of life. Locking doors now became a reflective action, and residents grappled with newfound realization that they too were susceptible to the horrors of crime. On February 12, 1974, David Fryer pleaded guilty to three counts of murder and one count of manslaughter. The judge handed down a sentence of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Unwilling to accept his fate, David defiantly demanded death, asserting that he would rather die than spend his life behind bars. Reminded that such decisions were beyond his control, he was left to begin his sentence. Three months later, on May 20th, Alan Fryer faced a jury trial and was found guilty of first-degree murder for the deaths of Roger Dessam, Stuart Bade, Dana Bade, and Michael Hadrath. His punishment mirrored David's, life imprisonment without parole. During this time, while awaiting transport to prison, Alan and James orchestrated a daring escape. Commandeering a vehicle, they managed to evade capture until reaching Wyoming. Fearing Alan's threats to kill Sandra if she ever spoke of what transpired in those woods, armed law enforcement officers vigilantly guard her and her family around the clock until the brothers were safely back in custody. On December 3rd, 1974, James Fryer was found guilty of the exact charges of his brother David. He received a sentence of life imprisonment without parole. Prosecutors opted not to subject Sandra to the trauma of reliving her rape in a courtroom. Today, all three Fryer brothers remain incarcerated, serving the sentences they rightfully earned. Allen resides in the confines of Anamosa State Penitentiary in Iowa. And at the same time, James and David spend their days two and a half hours away at the Fort Dodge Correctional Facility. While Sandra's only crime was being in the wrong place at the wrong time, she too languished within her own prison during and after the trials that spanned 18 grueling months. The weight of survivor's guilt bore her down, threatening to crush her spirit. Hindered by incessant stares and fingers pointed at her way, she retreated into solitude, becoming a recluse. Upon her returning to school, Sandra encountered bewildered classmates who now shunned her. Friends had turned their backs on her due to parental warnings that she was an accomplice to murder. This gross misconception further isolated her. Critics failed to grasp the psychological toll that such traumatic circumstances exacted upon such an innocent young girl. In overwhelming despair and fear, Individuals cling to beliefs that provide solace and preserve their sanity. Entirely unprepared for such horrors, Sandra placed unquestioning trust in adults who presented themselves as law enforcement officers. Yet, rather than having to explain herself repeatedly, Sandra succumbed to the whispers and cruel rumors, dropping out of eighth grade a year later. 
though most of the community eventually discarded suspicions of Sandra's involvement in the murders, they remained wary of associating with someone burdened by a perceived stigma. During the trial, Sandra testified that the Fryer brothers, after they'd put her in the van, told her that her friends were just asleep. Many wondered aloud how could she have believed that when she had witnessed their bloodshed and heard their anguished cries. However, those quick to judge failed to comprehend the depths of trauma and survival instincts that propelled Sandra's actions. Without any previous experiences to prepare her for the horror she encountered, it was natural for a girl of Sandra's age to accept the word of a seemingly authoritative figure without question. Instead of offering understanding, the community further isolated her, forcing Sandra to keep her head down and her gaze averted throughout her teenage and early adult years. In addition to the public scrutiny she endured, Sandra grappled with nightmarish dreams that relentlessly pursued her. In these haunting visions, the killers lurked around every corner, seeking vengeance against the one who had slipped through their grasp. Their faces were etched deeply into her memory, and she lived in constant fear, always anticipating their return. While it troubled her that detectives initially questioned her account, Sandra harbors no resentment toward those who ultimately brought her captors to justice. Although her initial skepticism added to her immense burden, she acknowledges that they treated her fairly. Her remarkable journey and unwavering determination played a pivotal role in identifying the perpetrators, enabling justice to prevail. Closure came slowly but surely for Sandra as she learned to put the horrors of Gitchi Manitou behind her. Overcoming survivor's guilt became a monumental feat. Still, with time and introspection, she realized that she bore no responsibility for the unfolding tragedy. Accepting that the blame lay solely with the Friar brothers empowered Sandra to break free from the shackles of her past and finally reclaim her life. I'm Christopher Feinstein, and this is Haunted American History. I'd like to give a shout to the newest member of my Patreon, Jay. Thank you so much for joining. I say it every time, but your support literally means the world to me. If you'd like to join the Patreon, patreon.com slash hauntedamericanhistory. We have ad-free episodes, early releases, and uh, my stories from the Nightmare Collective, which is coming again this month, if not already. I don't know when this releases. So bad at my job. I wish this was my job. I gotta go to stupid work in the morning, every morning, and then come home and do this. But I love this, and I love you guys, and I love everybody. All right, folks. Later. <laughs> <laughs>